0: That's Micah chapter 5, starting at verse 1, and it's page 941. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, Whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrods at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off.
1: Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel.
2: So uh, look ahead with me. It's Tuesday the 5th of December this coming year, so later on. It's a crisp winter's evening Carol singers are outside. They are drawing people in to the warmth of this building. The lights are dimmed. There are at least three large trees in here, decked in tinsel. The aroma of wine being mulled is uh, wafting through. There's a rounding rendition of Once in Royal, David City. You hear the familiar words of the traditional readings at the end. O come all ye faithful. But then at the end, your guest turns to you and says, I've got a question. What we just heard about Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and the clans of Judah. I've always wondered, what is that all about? So what would you say? Well, good news. You looked at Micah earlier in the year, back in March. You'll be ready to go. So this afternoon is our third installment in this book of Micah. And God gave his prophet, who was Micah, a message for the people of Israel. We're back in the 8th century BC. The last couple of weeks, we've heard of the Lord's devastating judgment on its way for the sin of the people. But then in stark contrast, last week, Micah painted a picture of a glorious future when the mountain of the house of the Lord would be established, the coming together of heaven and earth, People would flow to it from every nation. Do you remember swords into plowshares, peace and prosperity? The Lord would gather his people to himself where he would reign over them forevermore. But how do we get there? How do we get from devastating judgment, which all deserve, to this glorious future? And that question is still alive in 21st century London. Now, unlike Israel, we don't feel we are being threatened by a hostile foreign power right at the moment. But all the same, there's plenty that is not as it should be, far from it, and we long for this better world. But still, how do we get there? Well, that's what Micah now wants to show us. And first we see the need for a king. We're now in these last... Few verses of chapter 4 the need for a king so judgment was coming for israel the 8th century bc and then what that looked like was mighty empires and the immediate threat was called assyria which had already destroyed the northern kingdom and it was now eyeing if you like the southern kingdom of judah so what hope could there be for judah in the face of such an enemy well look at chapter 4 And verse 8, the message is to the daughter of Zion, that is to Jerusalem. And it's the, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So what is needed is a king and kingship. And the former kingship, it's like, if only life could be like it was long ago under King Solomon. But, verse 9, Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? So the people are crying out because they are under the kosh of Assyria. Is there no king in you? Micah asks. But it's sarcastic because in those days there was a king, probably Hezekiah at this point. But he didn't have much to offer in the face of mighty Assyria if at all. And the idea that he and his rule would bring lasting peace and prosperity, well, that was a cruel joke. Look at the language at the end of the verse. The people were in pain like a woman in labor. Now, that's obviously not a particularly pleasant image, but Micah sticks with it in verse 10 and says, writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So it's all like a command from Micah to writhe and groan. His point is, this judgment to come is inevitable. You will endure it, just like that woman in labor can't avoid it. And he says you are going to suffer, but he prophesies, surprisingly, It won't be Assyria, but it'll be Babylon, which is the next empire down the line. They would take the people of Israel away into exile. But did you hear how Micah kept going with that imagery in the same way that the pain of labor leads to joy of new life? So Israel's suffering and exile in Babylon will lead to rescue and redemption. But still this question is there. We've seen, okay, the need is for a king, but where then will this king come from, this rescue? And Micah goes on to say, there will be a shepherd king, the shepherd king. So as we saw chapter 5, a reminder again of how bad it is, verse 1, the people are under siege and the judge of Israel, that is their current ruler, is struck on the cheek, which means he's humiliated. That king can do nothing. And the people are in utter despair. But, but, says Micah, look up. In fact, look ahead. Because there is one coming. One who will somehow make all the difference. And he will come from Bethlehem. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. So you might wonder, what is the significance then of Bethlehem, Ephrathah? Ephrathah tells us which Bethlehem we're talking about, the one in the south, not far from Jerusalem, not the one in the north. But the point really about Bethlehem is its lack of significance. Back in the Bible book of Joshua, there's a list of all the towns or clans, if you like, in Judah that are worth mentioning. Bethlehem didn't make the cut. It wasn't even listed. So what might be the equivalent in London of Bethlehem? Now this is a risky thing to say, but how about Bethnal Green? Now, I'm sorry, Marilyn. I uh, I say this as someone who lives right by Bethnal Green. I'll be there this evening. I really like Bethnal Green. But it has to be said, you don't see many A-listers in Bethnal Green. It's just a fact. Royalty, well, they are born elsewhere, further west, maybe. So with Bethlehem, what could Bethlehem offer? And still today, actually, what do people think of the one we know who came from Bethlehem? He's discounted. He's written off. How could someone born in that village so long ago possibly make my life better today? After all, even back then, the one who we know was born in Bethlehem had to suffer. He was rejected. He died in shame. He wasn't impressive, in fact, to be shunned. I mean, what good is a crucified loser to anyone? And yet, that's not all there is to say about Bethlehem. Let's read on in verse 2. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Because those paying attention as they listen to Micah, if they knew of the history of God's dealings with his people. Well, Bethlehem, that did ring a few bells. Ruth and Boaz were in Bethlehem. And from their family line came Jesse, whose youngest son was, well, a little shepherd boy called David. Then against expectations, he did rise to become king. And to him, God made the most astonishing promise. He said to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So if you like, those with eyes to see would have known already to keep looking to the line of David, even if the current occupier of that throne wasn't the one they wanted. But Micah is sharpening it up. The king would come, not as you would have expected, surely from the palace life in Jerusalem. Somehow it'll be back in lowly Bethlehem. So the shepherd king, he'll be the least from Bethlehem. But then he will be to the ends of the earth. Let's keep listening to Micah verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return To the people of Israel. So Micah knew his Bethlehem prophecy was not going to be fulfilled anytime soon. The people would still be given up, they'd endure pain, even for hundreds of years. But then, still, this ruler from Bethlehem would be born and gather God's people back together again. And then, verse 4 he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Here is the shepherd that we've heard a little bit about in Micah already the one that God's people need, one who is so strong, he can protect his people, not just from an earthly empire, but forever. And despite those first impressions of lowliness, it turns out he is great and will be great even to the ends of the earth. This peace that we long for, he can deliver peace with God above all, which will then lead to peace with all in his kingdom. So it was seven or eight hundred years later in the first century when King Herod of Jerusalem heard. That one called the King of the Jews had been born, and Herod was very troubled to hear this. He got in those Old Testament experts and asked them where this Christ was meant to appear. And they said Bethlehem. Of course they did, because they knew Micah. A few days, a few years, a few decades actually later, the grown up Jesus was again causing a stir, this time still in Jerusalem. And it's John's Gospel that tells us about this. The crowd was there and there was a big issue. Who is this man? Maybe, some suggested, this might be the long-awaited Christ. No, said others, he's too northern for that, from Galilee. And they went on, quote, and said this, Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Well, exactly. The scripture did say that, but didn't they think to ask, the one who grew up in northern Nazareth, where had he been born? Well, at this point, a comment maybe for those of us who might not consider themselves to be Christian. You're very welcome every Sunday here at the 4 p.m. And I take it that you, like all of us, are longing for a better world, for hope, for the future, even beyond death. And in terms of who or what can really bring that about, well, what Micah is saying to us here surely tells us, look again at Jesus Christ. Micah written 700 BC. Micah said specifically, watch Bethlehem. And so even in the first century, before Jesus appeared, the Jewish expectation was that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. We know, don't we, that Jesus never led an earthly uprising. He never led a town council, let alone a nation, let alone an empire. His life was short. It ended in ignominy and shame. He suffered that agonizing death that was designed to deter others from being like him. He was the least like his birth. Why would you pay any attention to him? Except maybe for a start of historical record, he was born in that place called Bethlehem. And what I've just said is not, of course, the whole story. That same Jesus Christ, his influence, that individual who clearly walked our earth, for the last 2,000 years, his influence has spread And spread and spread. It is staggering and undeniable. Another matter of historical record, he rose again from the dead. He does now rule over all as king. And this Jesus has countless millions of followers. And not just following in the Twitter sense of following, but followers who serve him with their lives and deaths if need be. As Micah said, Jesus is great to the ends of the earth. So Micah would say, look again to Jesus Christ. How do we account for this fulfilment of prophecy? How do we account for the greatness of Jesus Christ, given the lowliness of his life? Can we see that to a people in desperate need of a king, God has sent the long-awaited great shepherd king? So now Micah goes on to speak of the people of the king. So we're going to go into this final section, the rest of chapter 5. Do you remember what we saw last week? Do you remember about when Micah's prophecies are fulfilled? So Micah was writing in historical context. There was some initial fulfillment in the history of Israel and Judah in the years and decades of Micah's lifetime and following. Then, do you remember, we saw there's been prophecies about the latter days, or the last day, that day. And those prophecies have found fulfillment in Christ. The Bethlehem baby now has been born. But what we might call the ultimate consummation of these prophecies that is they're outworking in full in our experience well that is yet to come so we say we live in the midst of these latter days sometimes it's described as living in the now and the not yet so the kingdom is now the king has come he's alive his kingdom is now growing we are his people now But not all that Micah has told us about the kingdom, for example, that it will be a place of universal peace, is yet experienced in full. So in these in-between times, we will see some fulfillment of what Micah prophesies in our experience, but we still await the glorious day when we'll experience it in full. So with that in mind, what does Micah now say about the people of the king, that is us? Well, first, he says, we are a people who will be delivered. Just scan your eyes. We heard it read verses 5 and 6. There's an obvious repetition. Assyria. Now, Assyria here stands not only for that empire of the 8th century BC, but also for all who would oppose God's king. Nimrod, there in verse 6, another example of an enemy like that. So, as we read this Section. We're meant to be thinking of all who would oppose God's people, oppose Christians. So maybe particular people. Certainly we might think of disease and death. The devil himself is still prowling around looking to devour. Well, look at what this shepherd, halfway through verse 6, will do for his people. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. So here is great encouragement for Christians around the world today facing hostility and oppression. They are safe in the arms of their shepherd king. And so for us, we face troubles and trials. Well, we will be provided for with the Lord as shepherd king, we will not want ultimately. And then death is casting its growing shadow over us, It'll soon overtake us. Well, again, our shepherd king will deliver. So the people of the king are protected. They also will impact the nations. So where do you find God's people today? Well, look at verse 7, in the midst of many peoples, or verse 8, among the nations. So that's talking both what was true during the exile back then, but also today. We, God's people, are not one geographic nation like Israel was back then. We are spread out around the world, rubbing shoulders day by day with those who do not yet know God. And what is going to be the effect of this? Well, first, verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children. Of man, dew in the morning, showers in the sky, these are blessings from the Lord, blessings which refresh and give life. The point is, Christians living as Christians makes life better for all those around them. The very best thing for your workplace or for your school is for there to be Christians there, like you, living as Christians. That is good for everyone. And we've seen this down the years. In the past, what is it that has transformed societies for the better? Christians living out as Christians. Who was it that drove the abolition of the slave trade? Historically, who is it that's been the forefront of establishing schools and hospitals? You may have read the non-Christian writer Tom Holland. One of his constant emphases is trying to get us all to realize just how many of the qualities that virtually everyone in our society appreciates we have because of our Christian heritage. And above all, Christians will be saying to those around them, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. That is, Christians will be inviting others to come under the care and protection of of the shepherd king. And that will lead to blessing, not just in this life, in this world, but of course, into eternity. Christians are good for the world. But that's not the only effect God's people have on those around them. Verse eight, and the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. So Christians are the very best thing for any workplace or school. But you tell me, how are Christians who live and speak as Christians treated in the workplace or in school? All too often, they are unwelcome, accused of being divisive, Bigots, or worse, their attempts to silence them, or again, more than that. But these verses are telling us how Christians are treated shows what those around them think, not only of them, but of their shepherd king. The hostility reveals, really, rejection of Jesus. And the world seems to do this with seeming impunity, but they just don't realize what they are doing because the shepherd will deliver his people by being to their enemies like a roaring lion. And in this verse says, he will tear them to pieces. And at that point, there'll be none to deliver. We're seeing here really a fulfillment of a promise that God gave long ago to Abraham. God had said to him, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So we, God's people, will we'll be delivered, will have an impact as we live our lives in the world. Finally, the people of the king will be purified. So look down verses 10 to 14, there's a repetition. They emphasize repeatedly that God will cut off. Now, if we weren't paying attention, we might naturally think, well, that's talking about God's enemies, but no. Listen carefully. For example, let's start with verse 10. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. God is speaking to his people. Because Israel back then was tempted to trust in its own military strength or the military strength of another nation. But that was futile. And still today around the world, societies put their trust Their hope in their military might. The defence budget is what counts. But that works on the individual level as well. Where do we look to to be strong? Is it in the property that we own? The size of the bank balance? The health insurance we've got just in case? Now those aren't necessarily bad things. But you can't serve the Lord and mammon if we are putting our trust in these things as our strength, the Lord says he will cut them off from us in whatever way he thinks would be best for us. There are more examples like this. Let's look at verse 13 where the Lord says, and I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. So there's religion and however much of it speaks of God, or sometimes even looks to the Bible, but is not actually listening. And if then a church slips into any form of idolatry, God in his kindness will do what is necessary to purify it. Or again, we could think individually. Look at that language at the end of verse 13. We think this talk of bowing down to the work of our hands is not talking about us. But let's think again. What do we think will take care of us? Or if you like, what will shepherd us in the end? Well, is it the work of our hands in the sense maybe of the qualifications or the education that we have? Or is it the work of our hands in building a career that we think, that'll keep me safe? Or the effort we put into cultivating relationships that we think will be our safety net? If We think such things are our shepherd, that they will take care of us. Well, God is saying they won't deliver. They won't deliver even in this life, let alone into eternity. And we don't need those things in the sense we have a shepherd king. We've seen he will deliver us. The Bible uses the imagery that shepherd king carries his people in his arms. But this passage is saying the way he will express his tender care towards us is by ripping out of our hands anything else we are clinging on to. He will cut off from us our strength, the work of our own hands. Now that sounds painful, and no doubt it will be. But again, this is the Lord's kindness to his own people. The very best way to live is to trust in the Lord. So he will take away anything that is stopping us from doing that. Uncomfortable, to say the least. But what's the alternative? Verse 15. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So those who reject the shepherd king, those who inflict pain and suffering on others, they won't get away with it. God is angry with rebellion against him. Those who harm his people. And he says here, one day he will put it right. There will be justice forever. But on that day, we, God's people, will be welcomed into the mountain of the house of the Lord. This place of peace and prosperity. A place of no idols, so get rid of them now. And there we will be in the very presence of the Lord himself. And why will we be there? Not because of our own efforts at all. We needed somebody else to get us there, a king, a shepherd king. And he was born in Bethlehem. And yes, he suffered and died, but rose again and is now great to the ends of the earth. I'll lead us in a prayer. Our Father, we do praise you for your plan prophesied centuries ago, fulfilled in Christ, to provide for us this great shepherd king that we need to rescue us from your judgment and to keep us safe until we are with you forever. And so now as we face the challenges of living in the midst of the nations, would we not look to the work of our own hands or to anyone else for our security? Would we instead be this refreshing blessing to those around us as we walk in your ways and invite others to join us in relying on our shepherd king? And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.